You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch. Sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those Voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today... My hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. It's so great to be back. Joining me in just a moment will be Elizabeth Newman. Elizabeth was the uh, former Deputy Chief of Staff for the Department of Homeland Security, as well as Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism. So with regard to the events that have taken place this week, I think it couldn't be more timely for us to have Elizabeth on the show and, and learn from her. Before we get started, I wanted to mention that at the end of the show, we'll be introducing to you Terry Boyer, the founding executive director for the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute at Villanova University, who we are partnering with to bring exposure 
to their work and a brand new women's leadership development certificate program that they're going to be launching this fall. So as an alum myself, I'm thrilled and proud and excited to be partnering with Villanova University. Uh, A quick mention also about our watch team of on-air contributors. We currently have openings in both our Philadelphia and New York market right now. So if you're interested in learning more, feel free to reach out to our GM, Laura Scotty, and you can reach Laura at laura at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And you can find all information there at our website regarding our lineup of guests and any events that might be coming up. So now, again, I'm, I'm very proud and excited to welcome to the show Elizabeth Newman. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Susan. This is such a pleasure. Well, I, as I said, and you know, at the beginning, it is, I think it's so timely. There's a lot happening, um, not only in the U.S., but around the world right now, uh, things that are keeping us all uh, awake at night. And I think you're such a perfect guest for, for me to have this week to really find out some uh, of the truth about things that are going on, things that... Um, we need to be implemented and and really just get some insight from you um, from from behind the scenes. I before we get into to some of that, I want to um, give our listeners an idea of you and where you came from and really what led you to do this very important work and also put yourself out there in a very public way. So I, I know that you grew up in Dallas, Texas, and I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that community and what you remember most about your years growing up. Sure. Um, I actually grew up in uh, what would have been an exurb back then we didn't call it that it was far north uh, part of Dallas um, Metroplex uh, in a at the time very small town of McKinney Texas um, it, McKinney is not so small anymore and uh, actually was in the news this week um, related to uh, January 6th um, so it, it is kind of interesting how uh, my my hometown um, and the the ties to my current work uh, are sadly kind of connected these days but I but I grew right. up in a, a small town my dad was a um, had a medical practice um, and he intentionally, wanted to be in a, in a, at the time, a rural area and be able to, uh, serve, uh, communities that, that didn't have, um, a, a lot of access to medical care. Uh, McKinney was also growing at the time. Um, and, uh, the, so the, the community was, um, it felt compared to where the rest of Dallas was, it felt very far away. It felt, um, like it was, uh, that we were kind of in a world unto our own, especially when you're a young child. Um, my mother's family was also in the Dallas area. So I grew up, um, around my grandparents and cousins and, um, I attended, uh, a Christian school for the, the most of my childhood. There was one year I went to public school, but, um, I went to a Christian school that was closer to town. So we drove, um, about 45 minutes each way, uh, to get to school, um, uh, for most of my, uh, elementary and junior high and high school. Um, it, 
I, I think it was probably a rather normal childhood. Um, we played sports. Uh, my, my parents were, uh, look for opportunities to expose us to the arts and to, um, uh, just kind of the broader world. Um, it was only probably leaving that I, I realized how much of a, a bubble the, uh, Texas, um, particularly North Dallas can be, uh, in that, um, it, you, we had a lot of, um, economic advantages in, in North Dallas still do. Um, it's, it's one of the booming, uh, economies in, um, in the country. Uh, so it, it was only in leaving that I was able to look back and I'm very grateful for my upbringing and my parents made a lot of sacrifices to give us opportunities. Um, but I, I don't think I realized how homogenous it was until I, until I left. Elizabeth, how did your attendance at Trinity Christian Academy help to shape your current values and and your approach to the work that you're doing today? Sure. So Trinity was um, one of the more uh, academically focused Christian schools in the area at the time. Um, They, uh, especially in high school, put a lot of emphasis on critical thinking and um, teaching us how to write. Um, I often, um, when I went to college, discovered that I I learned a lot of skills that, that my peers attending other schools had not. So I was very, very grateful for that uh, set of skills that we that we learned at Trinity. Um, there was there were a couple of teachers that um, were very interested in uh, government and were able to kind of explain um, the role of uh, why as a believer, as a Christian, um, it was good to be involved in uh, the public sphere. Um, and, and, you know, there were also other voices that, that kind of um, view, especially, I mean, this is pretty common in the Christian community. Uh, you're often, um, uh, valued for if you go into ministry, right. And so there's a, Mm. uh, a praise heaped on people that choose to go to seminary or choose to go into ministry, all of which is really noble and good. Um, but I had a few teachers that emphasize like there are other forms of ministry and, uh, being involved in, and public service and being involved in government, that those are equally, uh, valuable things to do as, as a Christian. So I, I had some, um, teachers that I'm very grateful for that I still think of today um, that were influential in encouraging me into the government space. At the same time, there were these other voices um, that struck me as, um, I mean, they were influential, um, but at the same time as I was hearing them, I kind of was like, I don't like, and I'm not what you're saying, and I don't think I agree with it, but voices like, well, you're, you're a woman, so you can't be a leader. Um, you know, the Bible teaches that women can't be pastors, therefore women can't, uh, also be leaders in business or in government. And now to be clear, the voices that were saying that were my peers. They, they were not teachers. They were, okay. I, I was going to say who yeah. in the world was saying that to you, <laughs> but, but it, but it tells you, I mean, this is high school, right? These are, these are people that had picked up that message, uh, maybe not explicitly, but they were left with the impression that men were supposed to lead and women were not. And right. that was the opposite of what my parents told me. My parents were telling me, you can be whatever you want. My grandfather, um, likewise, uh, though generationally, I'm, sh- I'm sure maybe that's not 
what he thought several decades prior, but he was uh, blessed with, I want to say there were seven granddaughters and one grandson. Um, oh, wow. Two, two wow. grandsons. Um, and uh, so he, he definitely had the uh, uh, emphasize to all of us, you know, go and get an education and, and go build, um, you know, a, a career. And, and, you know, he, several of my cousins have uh, PhDs and, um, you know, the, they're very competent professionals um, in their sphere of influence. And I, I credit a lot of that to the influence of my grandfather who emphasized the importance of education, emphasized the importance of hard work. He was an entrepreneur and built a business from scratch um, and provided for not only his immediate family, but all of his siblings. Um, he paid for many of his siblings to go to college, paid for many of his um, siblings children to go to college. Like education was a huge thing for him. And he was, uh, he, he worked hard to try to, um, provide that opportunity. So, so I, it was, it, there was kind of this recognition when I started hearing these voices of like, well, you can't lead, well, you can't go into government. I'm like, that is not at all what I've been raised with. Where is this coming from? And it, it but mm. again, it was one of those things that I had to leave to, to be able to look back at some of the, uh, parts of the Christian community, I didn't know where, where that was coming from, but I now can appreciate there, there is a strong part of certain subcultures in the Christian community that, that do uh, take a very high paternalistic view of male authority, authority and right. um, believe that, that women are subservient. And that, I, I don't think that's biblical. And I, I think it's unhealthy for our culture as well as the church. Right. You know, it's fascinating to me that you brought, <clears throat> excuse me, that topic up specifically because I did want to ask you about that. And we could probably do a whole separate show on religion, but it's not surprising to me when you look at religion, whether it's Christian, Catholic, um, there's very obvious um, symbols there that that show men are the leaders and um, women play a different role. So I'm always fascinated by the, the difference between what messaging we get there if we're people of faith and what messaging we get from family, parents, you know, siblings, and um, how that weighs one way or the other on, on our direction. But we're going to go into our first break when we come back. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about what, you know, what challenges challenges you had growing up and um, some of the things that you're you're most proud of today when you think about your work. Stay with us. I'm talking to Elizabeth Newman, again, the deputy, former deputy chief of staff for the Department of Homeland Security and assistant secretary for counterterrorism. Stay tuned for our watch team. We'll be right back. Now the women to watch. Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. March, Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. But we worry about this cancer all year long. It's common, often deadly, but preventable. Maybe the most preventable cancer of all because with screening, we can find benign polyps and remove them before they turn to cancer. So now let's talk about March and awareness. This morning on Your Radio Doctor, I spoke to three men who are leaders in spreading the battle cry to get screened. Mr. Steve Collis, CEO and President of Amerisource Bergen, a global healthcare company, a founding vice chairman of the Pennsylvania 
Pennsylvania chapter of CEOs Against Cancer. Michael Sapienza, CEO of the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, and Mr. Joe Frick, former CEO and president of Independence Blue Cross, shares the story of his own battle with colorectal cancer. Listen to the show on yourradiodoctor.net. For eight years, the Blue Lights campaign has led the crusade in Philadelphia and beyond. 30 landmark buildings shine in blue, skyscrapers, arenas, iconic Boathouse Row, the Ben Franklin Bridge, even the Pennsylvania State Capitol, recognized with a national award from the American College of Gastroenterology. As the director of the Blue Lights campaign, I want people to be wrapped in the blue message and feel the urgency to get screened. With the help of State Rep. Maria Donatucci, we began lighting the State Capitol about five years ago and continue the annual tradition now with the help of State Senator Michelle Brooks. But I knew we could take the message even further. I contacted Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and asked that he share my letter with the other 49 Lieutenant Governors, inviting them to join the campaign and light their capitals too. Well, thanks to L.G. Fetterman of Pennsylvania and L.G. Griffin of Arkansas, the resolution was submitted to the National L.G. Association in February and accepted this past week on Thursday, March 25th. This means now every state capital is invited to shine in blue during March to remind people to get screened for the cancer that needlessly takes the lives of so many Americans. I'm jubilant. Now promise me, your radio doctor, and yourself that you'll get screened for colorectal cancer. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Thank you for listening to my Health Watch segment each week on Women to Watch. Welcome back. I'm speaking to Elizabeth Newman. And um, Elizabeth, I love what you said just in that uh, first segment about um, hearing voices, kind of, you know, quiet voices saying, you know, you're you're a woman, you're a girl, you're not meant to lead. And... Um, you're fighting against that, basically She's saying, no, that's that's not that's not true. And it's something I do want to do. Um, I did want to you did go and receive a bachelor's degree in government studies from the University of Texas at Austin. What was it about government work that attracted you? Because there's a lot of different um, industries we can go into to be of service. So true. And um, my, my university years were um, fun. I, I did a lot in politics at the time. I worked at the Republican Party of Texas. I worked on the Bush campaign. I could not, for the life of me, figure out what, what degree to get. I, I think um, I once counted up, I tried over 15 different majors. And I was... <laughs> That's exploring. It is. It is. I have a lot of interests and it was hard for me to hone in on just because you like something. um, It can be a hobby. It's not necessarily your, your calling and, or what's going to help you make a living. So, um, it it actually was my parents and they had learned over the years not to be too direct about their, um, uh, advice to me because I, uh, was, I was this rebellious, strong headed, uh, teenage girl. Um, and they learned in my college search that if they praised something too much that I would reject it because they liked it. Um, so (laughs) at some point in, I want to say my junior year, maybe it was my end of my sophomore year, we, they had come down to visit and, you know, they're looking at the bills. They're like, Hey, so, you know, what's your plan here? And and I was like, well, I, you know, I love Russian studies and, you know, but I also like astrophysics. Um, and my dad had earlier encouraged computer science. He thought that was going to be a really big thing. This was the nineties. He turned out to be right. Um, He was right. He was right. (laughs) Um, but I I'm like, I, I don't know. I kind of want to do like maybe a dual degree and I could see their eyes widen. Like this is, 
never going to end. Um, and they point <laughs> out, they point out, you know, it's not every day that somebody runs for president that has a really good chance at maybe becoming president in the town that you're living in you might want to consider figuring out how you finish your degree pretty fast so that if he wins, you can go up to Washington, D.C., which is what you've been interested in doing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a, you know, and they, they said they were careful on how they framed it and let it be kind of yeah. like my own decision. But right. that was probably <laughs> the best advice that I got um, because I, I did end up joining the campaign and he did end up winning. And um, that kind of just I just ended up following the opportunity as opposed to knowing in my head what I wanted to do. And um, uh, if Bush had not been running, if there wasn't a campaign, I probably would have been in school a lot longer, but maybe have ended up with more degrees. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, I love, first of all, I love your parents' parenting style, because I think that's exactly what we're supposed to do as parents is kind of, you know, guide our children, help them explore and figure things out on their own, which they will be more apt to to do if they think it's their idea. (laughs) Right. Right? Um, So, Elizabeth, you're interesting for a lot of different reasons, but the the most obvious is that you, you know, registered Republican. Um, voted for Trump, went and worked uh, under his administration, and then learned some things about him and the way that he was um, guiding the country that you did not agree with, and and you left. And when I think about that, the first question I wanted to talk to you about was speaking out publicly on any issue today is uh, a, is risky business and can be extremely toxic. And I wanted to ask you, how has it been for you? It is, it is um, risky. And we thought and prayed about it a long time before we decided to, and I say we, my, my husband and I, um, before we decided to do this, um, it was, my husband actually got there well before I did. He was like, you're supposed to do this. And I'm like, I, I don't know this, this, um, it seems like, uh, it, it's dangerous, right? We have children. We were concerned about, uh, about them. Um, and, and not, and it wasn't without, um, you know, factual basis. Uh, Some of my colleagues that have spoken out, they, they have received death threats. They have, have had to hire security. Um, the, during the 2016 election, people that came out, uh, against Trump, people that were Republicans or people in the Christian community that came out against Trump, they faced pretty, uh, horrible threats. So it was with that knowledge, plus, you know, you, you have a security background, you, you, you do see the, the worst of the worst in that field. So you kind of know mm. that, that this was not without risk, but, um, I've been very grateful that, uh, it so far has, um, not been, uh, of a security concern. There, of course, of course are people that, uh, love to criticize you and, um, uh, you know, uh, they're disrespectful with their words, but I haven't, we haven't right. faced any security threats, which is the biggest concern. And how about just those those uh, comments, opinions, pushback, the words? Are you are you you know, as they say, thick skinned? Are you able to really just understand that um, none of that truly is meaningful for for your journey, your path? I am not um, thick skinned. Uh, I 
am very sensitive to how others perceive me. Uh, and that was probably one of the biggest hurdles in speaking out. Something changed though when I decided to speak out. It was very grounded in a sense of this was the right thing to do. Um, I felt I was very concerned that those of us that had gone into the administration because we felt like it was the right thing to do to help our country um, mm -hmm. to to you know focus on you know whatever our area of responsibility was for me it was counterterrorism to try to help the counterterrorism community do their job and and protect the community from the chaos that that was Trump. Um, and there are many that went in with this purpose. It was not, they, people didn't like Trump. They uh, were not about his agenda. They weren't trying to disrupt his agenda. They just were trying to keep the ship steady uh, from what they perceived mm -hmm. to be uh, a tumultuous and, and potentially dangerous time. Um, so, you know, when I, when I left, I had no intention of speaking out. Um, and then Lafayette Square happened. And uh, the situation in Portland over the summer happened. And those two incidents made me realize this is going to get worse. The people, the initial group that had gone in to protect uh, the country and, and, and to serve, but to try to keep things steady, they were all pushed out. Uh, slowly but surely, the people that followed in behind them were sycophantic. They were um, about themselves. They didn't have a lot of experience or knowledge. And it made the country less safe to the point where decisions like what happened at Lafayette Square happens or decisions like putting uh, BORTAC, which is like Special Forces um, Border Patrol, in the middle of a U.S. city. Um, it, that, that wouldn't happen if you had seasoned, experienced leaders in the, the positions that they should have been. So those watching those things happen and realizing it's going to get much, much worse in the second term. And the American public has no idea because those of us that went in, we, we kind of papered over it. We, we, we covered for him. Um, so I felt kind of this obligation to speak out. And once I got to that place that it's not about me, it's about so many other people that have been harmed by this administration, um, communities that have been harmed and about the fact that four more years of him will harm our country. It, once I knew that I was coming from a place of this is the right thing to do, I, I trusted that God would pr provide and protect uh, to the extent that we needed protection. Um, and I, it kind of allowed those comments to just not matter anymore because I knew I was doing what I was supposed to do. Yeah, I, you know, we're going to go into another break. And when we come back, I, I just wanted to say going into the break that for those of us who have no knowledge or experience in government or what happens in D.C., I think most of us believe that somewhere the truth lies between what is um, given to us on Fox News and, and CNN, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and I just want to give you an opportunity and, and really hear from you firsthand what some of those truths are, because we're ultimately all wanting to know um, what that is, and especially in light of, of what happened this week. Uh, stay with us as I continue my interview with Elizabeth Newman, again, the former Deputy Chief of Staff of the Department of Homeland Security uh, with the Trump administration and Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism. Stay tuned for our watch team, and we'll be right back. Now, the women to watch, Military Watch. 
I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. This Monday, March 29th, is National Vietnam War Veterans Day. In commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War, and in recognition of that same date in 1973, when the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, disbanded, and the last U.S. troops departed the Republic of Vietnam. In 2012, President Obama proclaimed this day as Vietnam Veterans Day. We are all familiar with the beautiful Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall, that highly polished black granite wall that rises from the ground and honors the over 58,000 men and women who gave their lives in service. But you may not be aware of the Vietnam Women's Memorial adjacent to that wall that was established not only to honor those women who served, but also for the families who lost loved ones in the war, so they would know about the women who provided comfort, care, and a human touch for those who were suffering and dying. The Vietnam Women's Memorial was dedicated in 1993 as part of the larger Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Approximately 11,000 American military women were stationed in Vietnam during the war. Close to 90% were nurses in the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Others served as physicians, physical therapists, personnel in the Medical Service Corps, even air traffic controllers and communications and intelligence officers. Nearly all of these volunteered, and these women were the youngest group of medical personnel ever to serve in wartime. Because of the guerrilla tactics of Vietnam, Vietnam. Many women were in the midst of the conflict. There was no front, no such thing as safe behind our lines. There are the names of eight military women who died in Vietnam, and they are enlisted on the wall. Among those who gave the ultimate sacrifice was Lieutenant Sharon Lane, who died from shrapnel wounds when the 312th Evacuation Hospital at Chu Lai was hit by rockets on 8 June 1969. She was from Canton, Ohio, and she was only a month short of her 26th birthday. She was posthumously awarded the Vietnam Gallantry Cross with the Palm and Bronze Star for heroism. As someone who joined the military shortly after the end of the Vietnam War and served through modern conflicts, we owe Vietnam veterans a tremendous debt of gratitude and a continuous welcome home for the one they never received. Now, these monuments are not only noteworthy works of art and a place for reflection, they are also a reminder of the human cost of war. Next is our Coach's Corner podcast, which is a shorter version of our weekly show and can be heard wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm BJ Gray with this week's Coach's Corner. I want to talk to you today about how to disagree with someone respectively, because this is an interesting time to learn how to disagree, but still be inclusive where you're not just disagreeing. A trusting relationship is when you can go to that difficult conversation and be curious. Many times the emotions that are rising when disagreeing are not what the person's saying, but they're how you're interpreting that comment. And this is what taints the relationship. So first, it's helpful to reflect on your own bias in the situation. You need to understand what you believe and make sure you like what you believe and then understand that others have a right to their choice. And then ask yourself, why is it so difficult for you to hear others' opinions about this topic? Sure, you can feel mad or angry or upset, but that is your experience. You need to try to understand what they're experiencing. And that's when you can hold that space for that person and start to be more inclusive of their experience. You see, disagreeing is not an all or nothing thing. There isn't one unique truth. Disagreements happen often in the workplace, especially when someone calls you out. And this gray area is hard to navigate if you haven't taken the time to understand why you're triggered by this disagreement. It's an art to learn how to disagree and have have respect for someone that you disagree with. 
It takes reflection and understanding. And most importantly, it takes holding space of curiosity so you can build trust with that person. Right now, I encourage everyone to create a way to disagree with integrity. And it starts with understanding your own unique bias and filter first. Thanks for listening to this edition of Coach's Corner. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn or at bjgray.com. Until next time, I'm BJ from Coach's Corner. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Newman. And, um, you know, Elizabeth, I'm sure that you're aware that um, a lot of us who don't have any experience in government or, or, you know, how things are done in Washington um, understand that the truth is always somewhere in between what gets most attention, um, far right and far left. And it just leaves us very confused, um, unsure of, of what our own beliefs are. And when I think about, you know, your role was in being in charge of um, and knowledgeable on emerging threats and, and having to identify um, where there are concerns and things that need to be addressed. What can you share with us that might dispel some of the myths, I'll say, um, around terrorism, whether that is, you know, homegrown or international? Um, Anything that you learned during your time there that really pushed you to say, "I, I need to speak out against what the current administration is doing and really take a step back and approach it from a different angle? Yeah, yeah, I, I love the the framing there. You're right. It's um, a product of like these issues are complicated, and what grabs headlines and attentions in our increasingly short attention span um, requires communicators to to come up with very uh, quick pithy messaging. Um, you can have three points and that's it. And for some of these issues that are so complex, um, there's no way to do them justice with three main right. points. So you add to it the um, uh, monetization of outrage, which I think our culture is dealing with. And we saw firsthand in the 2020 election, um, you are paid by the clicks that you get or by the number of eyes that stay with your segments. And, um, and so we, it used to be sensational journalism. Now it's, I think more of the outrage journalism Mm -hmm. that you're, you're feeding your audience grievance over and over and over again. And, and we're just now prone to, um, always have that adrenaline going, always um, be in that fight or flight uh, feeling or sensation. And and that's what brings viewers back. But that's also, quite frankly, how we end up with uh, January 6th. That's how we end up with um, p- otherwise normal, sane people uh, believing that they're facing an existential threat that they are then willing to go commit some act of violence in the name yes. of. Um, and, and so it's really important that we... we fix, and I don't, I'm not going to propose solutions, but address those um, systemic uh, contributors to our polarization. And the media is a key piece of that. So I think, I think shows like yours, where you, you get to do things in long form and go deeper are, are really healthy and good for our country, but there's clearly other things that are going to have to be addressed. On the myths and terrorism, especially this last year, 
you saw um, a, a myth of Antifa as uh, the boogeyman uh, in our country uh, really grow in prominence on the right. Um, so let's, let's talk about Antifa. They, they're not an organization the way we talk about them as quote unquote, ant, you know, Antifa it kind of describes them as a proper noun. They're, they're really not. It's, it stands for anti-fascist. So it's more of a uh, a, a descriptive label as opposed to an organized group. Um, if you contrast that to uh, Boogaloo Boys, Neo-Nazis, Proud Boys, all of those are organized groups uh, that have um, some, they're usually very decentralized, they're not terribly organized, but, but there's still a group aspect to it, a formality to it that's more than just this label of a collective set of individuals that are against fascism. Now. There are people that are part of the anti-fascist movement that have participated in uh, riots or um, protests that have turned violent, um, mostly against property. Uh, the damage uh, tends to be more in infrastructure, not in lives. In fact, um, in the summer, we had the first uh, murder associated with left, what we call left-wing violent extremism associated with somebody with Antifa. Um, and it was in a protest, counter-protest moment where an Antifa member attacked um, uh, somebody from a, a right-wing group that was marching through, through Portland. But that's the first time that that's happened in about 20 years. If you flash back 50 years and uh, to the 1960s, 1970s, left-wing violence was a very real thing. It was a, a, a big challenge for law enforcement. Um, arguably, some would say uh, it was reaction to um, a police that were uh, abusing their authority. Um, but that's the last time that we've seen left-wing violence be of such a level of significance that it would raise to what I would consider a national security problem. Ever since then, the preponderance of people killed, the number of attacks um, is overwhelmingly coming from uh, what our international partners call right-wing violent extremism, what the U.S. government, they try not to label it based on political spectrum, the U.S. government calls it racially and ethnically motivated violent extremist, predominantly the white supremacist subcategory of that, as well as anti-government extremist uh, with a, within the militia context. Though that's where we've seen the preponderance of uh, lethal violence, and part of the reason that we've been advocating that we need to pay attention to it is that they've actually killed more people than even Islamist jihad terrorism uh, since 9-11. Um, but the government had not been, uh, the, when we, we lacked some of the tools needed to be able to go after that threat effectively, we lacked good data on the threat. Uh, and uh, the, the, because of those two factors, it was hard for the government to, to catch on that we were seeing this trend shift, that, that we were seeing rises in white supremacy and other um, militia activity. Back to Antifa, one of the, the strange moments um, in, in 2020, after hearing from uh, the White House uh, senior staff that were working directly with the president that he did not want to talk about domestic terrorism uh, in the period after El Paso, um, when you had the, a shooter go into a Walmart and um, kill, uh, I want to say it was 23 people, um, and his uh, in his manifesto he said he was doing it um, to counteract a Hispanic invasion, which were words that the, the president himself had used. Um, 
Back then, when we said we have a problem, we need to address this, we need to address domestic terrorism, uh, I was told we, the White House, cannot use those words. We can talk about violence prevention, but we can't talk about domestic terrorism. You flash forward to May of 2020, and um, the, there were some protests um, after George Floyd's murder. Some of those protests um, were violent. Some of that violence was actually, we now know, caused by Boogaloo Boys, which is a um, anti-government extremist group, but they are not Antifa. Um, the president, without really having any facts on his side, came out and asserted that it was Antifa that was causing all of the rioting and looting. And from that moment on, you saw a law and order campaign theme that really dominated the news cycle on the right. And that campaign theme um, became so prevalent that even after the election, if you poll a, a, somebody that watches Fox News, they are under the impression that Antifa is one of the gravest threats we're facing as a country. And after scouring data, and they actually told the FBI to defer cases um, and spend more, like go look for this, this massive coordinated effort that's undergirding the Antifa movement. Um, so there was a lot of investigative effort over the summer to try to unravel who was behind Antifa. They found nothing. Um, so there are no facts to back that up, and yet we still have a perception on the right that um, Antifa is a, a pretty grave threat. Um, that's not to say that we don't have problems in certain cities, Portland and Seattle in particular, with certain anarchist movements, but I, I'd like to remind especially conservatives that local law enforcement and state law enforcement problems need to be dealt with at a local and state level, not a national level. Wow. That that's fascinating information, and um, you know, again, I, I'm always looking to find uh, the truth of matters, and it's really hard to do that um, with the way the media is presented today. So, uh, we're going to go into our next break, and I want to remind everybody that you're going to be hearing um, a wonderful special interview between myself and Terry Boyer, Executive Director of the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute, um, at the end of the second hour of uh, this evening. So, so stay with us for that, and right now stay with us for our watch team, and I'll be back with Elizabeth Newman. Now the women to watch, Legal Watch. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard's Bar for your Legal Watch. As I've talked about before, New regulations have recently been put in place ensuring diversity on boards of directors. Ballard just dropped a podcast diving deep into board diversity with Felicity Hassan, the managing director of Involve, a membership organization and consultancy championing diversity and inclusiveness in business. She talks with Khalil Williams, the co-leader of Ballard's ESG initiative. You may remember that NASDAQ's new board diversity rules require companies to appoint at least two diverse board members or explain their reasons for not meeting that standard. For domestic companies, one of those diverse board members must be a woman and the other racially diverse or a member of the LGBTQ community. Additionally, it's legally mandated in the state of New York that companies file a statement with the Department of State indicating how many directors are on the board and how many of those directors are women. It's just one of the states following California's leads regarding gender-diverse boards. In 2018, California passed a law requiring every publicly held domestic or foreign company having its principal place of business in California to have at least one female director on its board by 2019. And just a few months ago, California extended that requirement to include racially diverse and LGBTQ directors. Women to Watch listeners,
listeners shouldn't let this wave of change embracing diversity pass them by. I encourage you all to look into opportunities around you to serve on boards and have your voices heard. As the country is seeing and the law is supporting, diversity of viewpoints result in the best decisions. This is Nicole Hittner for your Legal Watch on Women to Watch. This is Nicole Hittner of Legal Watch. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Women to Watch. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Thanks so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. If you missed the first hour, I am joined by Elizabeth Newman, the former Deputy Chief of Staff for the Department of Homeland Security and Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism. Um, a very important, um, heavy role, I'll say, and um, we're just getting some really interesting firsthand information from Elizabeth and a little bit about herself, how um, what I have more questions for her in this segment about really how she does this work and as a as a wife and a mother, um, knowing some of the things she does that that many of us don't get to see or know about. Um, Just a reminder as well, um, in the second hour, we're going to have a very special interview with Terry Boyer, the executive director for the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Villanova University that's doing incredible work to to help women advance into more leadership positions. And they're going to be launching a brand new Women's Leadership Development Certificate program this fall. So I'm very excited um, to be singing their praises and and bringing you more information on that course. So um, now back to Elizabeth Newman. I wanted to talk, Elizabeth, make sure that we talked a little bit about um, immigration, immigration issue. Um, you're currently senior advisor in national security for the National Immigration Forum. And um, when we think about immigration, that gosh, that's another tough issue that I think we get a lot of misinformation about what is being done, what is not being done. And, and my biggest question is, why is it so hard to come up with a sensible um, overhaul of the, of the immigration system and policies and start start changing it. What can you tell us about that? That's a great question. Um, I mean, there have been three attempts by three separate administrations to try to uh, get immigration reform, and they've all failed. Right. Um, different yes. reasons why they failed along the way, but it's not for lack of, of uh attention to the fact that this is a problem. The code has not been updated in 30 years. Um, it is very outdated. Uh, and, and the code itself, um, the way that the system works combined with certain court orders that have kind of come up throughout the years, 
create some of the vulnerabilities in the system itself. Um, and so it, it really needs to be updated. Um, for, and I would say on the national security side, there's two reasons. One, the vulnerabilities do make us less safe. And so I, I want those loopholes to be closed. I, I want um, the, it to be easier for the men and women that are trying to protect our country to do their jobs. Um, but two, when you have a broken system like this, we're not attracting the best and the brightest to our country. Part of what has made the United States have the competitive advantage that it's had economically is because it's the place that everybody wants to be. Um, and but whether it's to, to go to school or to start a business, um, we, we want to attract the smartest, uh, brightest people. And in order to do that, um, we, we have got to update the way that uh, legal immigration pathways are created. At the same time, um, especially after the last four years, we have, uh, our, our reputation has been severely damaged on the world uh, stage. We, we have stains to our name uh, for some of our actions. Um, and even if the uh, some of the underlying reasons for those actions were were perhaps justified, and, and I, I would argue, and I do argue in some papers that I wrote for the for the forum, that most of them were not. Um, the the rhetoric and the manner in which we carried out some of those things um, kind of outweighs the any sort of value you might have gotten from the the changes that the Trump administration tried to make. So um, the the moment that we find ourselves in, um, where we have a Democrat held uh, House, Senate, and presidency, it seems like there might be a potential to actually do something and actually pass immigration reform, but it will require compromise. You need 60 votes in the Senate. There are That means you need to find 10 Republicans. I think that there are, I, and, I, and the first one to, to say, I know that there are not too many Republicans that are interested in legislating and negotiating in good faith. But I think that you could probably find 10. Um, so I'm really hoping that um, when this comes up on the legislative schedule and they really put the effort into it, uh, that rather than continuing to use immigration as a political football, you will see people um, sit down. Maybe it needs to be behind closed doors so that they're not you know, trying to get their uh, pot shots um, on TV that day um, and, and cobble together whatever compromise they need to do to get to get reforms into law for our immigration system. Um, but you, you started the question with kind of a why. why, why are we still here? And the answer is that it is to the political benefit of both parties that this remain an outstanding issue. They love blaming each other for the problems that we're facing. And it's going to take leadership to say enough, enough with the politics, let's do the right thing for our country. I, I, sadly, you know, so much of our country is burdened uh, with leaders that um, care more about the, the politics and raising money uh, for their next election than actually doing the job that they got elected to do. You know, Elizabeth, I'm, I'm wondering if you believe this has always been the case. You know, ha, ha, there's a perception of politicians as always being um partisan and um, interested in, in being reelected and, 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 you know, changing sometimes, too, with the power that they have? Or are we just seeing it now um, because we have access to it? You know, certainly before the Internet, um, I think things were happening in 
we didn't know a lot about what was going on. Do you know, in other words, do you think there will ever be a time when politicians can sit down in a bipartisan way and really knock things out, get them done? I, I get accused of being Pollyanna. Um, and so let me be clear that I, I'm not overly optimistic that we'll see much change in behavior. Um, there are so many incentives to keep things the way that they are. But I also think that what happened on January 6th told us that the system is broken. We cannot keep doing the same things, which is grievance, 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 um, telling your constituents they should be angry and outraged all the time. We Correct. can't keep doing yes. that right. um, or we will suffer the consequences. Yeah, I, um, I, I and I, I don't know what the answer is there to get people to change <clears throat> what I always say, you know, to change people's hearts. I don't know that you can do that. Um, and it might take a new generation. Sometimes I, you know, I think about my own children who are in their 20s, and I do think that they have a different view of the world. And perhaps that's when we will see some change. I think there's something to that. I also think I get, it's so funny. I get criticized a lot for saying this, but empathy is what changes hearts. You, you have to listen to somebody that you were angry with. You have to like, let the anger pass and listen to somebody else's perspective and then invite them in, be transparent about why their perspective might be hurting you or causing you harm. But we, we have got to approach people that are different than us, that have a different perspective with empathy and invite them to the table to solve the problems with you, as opposed to saying they don't deserve it. They don't deserve my empathy. Um, somebody, one side, one or the other side has to choose to lay down the arms and say, we're going to try to do things different and leading with love instead of fear. And that we're talking about women. I think women are amazingly equipped to do that. I think we know how to lead with empathy yes. and with yes. love. And I think yes. this is a moment for women to step up and say, enough, we're going to change the way we do this. Yeah. What a perfect way to end this show. Um, Elizabeth, I, I agree with you. And I think we're seeing a, a major shift. It's going to be exciting to watch. I'd love to have you back on because I only got to ask you half of the questions I have. Um, I had so many. Um, I really thank you so much. And uh, I wish you continued success in, in you know your new role with Repair and, and all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much, Sue. It's a delight to be with you. Stay with us, everyone, as we go into a really special interview with Terry Boyer, again, the executive founding director for the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute at Villanova University. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manza from Pathways Consulting Group. As a woman in the technology industry for over 30 years, I can tell you for certain the industry continues to grow at an extremely fast pace. Employment of computer and IT occupations continues to grow by 12% and will add over 546,000 new jobs by 2024. Think about the amount of technology over the last four months you've heavily relied on to get groceries, conduct meetings, doctor visits, connect with family and friends. And with so many working from home now and in the future, there's an incredible amount of emphasis being placed on workplace technologies. These technologies enable an organization's workforce to work from anywhere, anytime in a secured environment. As technology takes on more of the mundane tasks, employees will be able to focus on the high-level human touch tasks. I would imagine that job descriptions and roles will and are starting to change. Trust me when I say, if you are a woman who's uncertain where you want to be in the future, consider a career in technology. And no, this does not 
not mean you have to be a technical person with hands on the keyboard coding. As example, at Pathways, we not only have four levels of developers and architects, but we also have business analysts, project managers, quality analysts, sales account managers. These individuals work closely with our development team and clients and are highly sought after in the tech industry. Six of our managers have no development hands on the keyboard experience. Presently at Pathways, we have so many job openings in all the roles I just mentioned. Most of these roles are remote work from home. We're an equal opportunity employer and have a phenomenal culture. And I'd love nothing more than to see us get a higher percentage of women applicants for these roles. So if you'd like to learn more about the jobs at Pathways or in the tech industry in general and where you believe you fit in, please reach out to me. My email is mary at pathwayscg.com. Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. Hi, I'm Lynn Falconio, Chief Marketing Officer of Publicis Health for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at marketing through the lens of empathy and the power of empathy to drive meaningful engagement. But in a digital world ruled by data, algorithms, and technology, where does empathy come into the mix? Today, marketers have access to an overabundance of data. In fact, 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are produced by humans every day. Amid this deluge of data, we often forget that behind the numbers are people and their stories. According to experts, data-driven empathy is understanding the story behind a data set to guide our choices. As we shift from analyzing numbers to analyzing people, marketers are swiftly adapting to data-fueled everything. Data-inspired creative, data-inspired media, CRM, and even data-fueled content production, moving all of us one step closer to one-to-one personalization at scale. But what will ultimately define any brand's success are the human insights and keys to empathy that lie within the data. In his book, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. My friend and colleague, Rashad Tabakawala, describes bringing together data-driven empathy as obtaining the story behind the spreadsheet. Rashad says the most successful leaders and organizations will leverage data in ways that extract and amplify meaning and not just math, asking the right questions and evolving diverse perspectives when analyzing data. In order to achieve data empathy, we need to focus on the story and the real identities behind the numbers. We need to understand our real customers, what motivates them, and identify the best next action to make better decisions. Until next time, I'm Lynn Falconio for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. Now, Women on the Fly. Hi, Sue Rocco here with our Women on the Fly segment. I'm with Elizabeth Newman. Elizabeth, how do you start your day? Uh, Coffee and I do a quiet time. I read my Bible and I pray. What is your mantra for stressful moments? (laughs) Uh, Breathe deeply and then I usually shoot up a prayer saying, Lord have mercy. I need need peace. (laughs) Lord help me. Lord help me. Are you a planner or more spontaneous? Oh, I'm both. And it drives my husband nuts because he's totally a planner. And then I sometimes plan and then I totally change the plan on him. And that drives him nuts. <laughs> Where are you typically when inspiration strikes? Um, walking, hiking, uh, and probably when I'm journaling. How about a place you've traveled to that you'd love to go back? Italy. Been a couple of times and we went there on our honeymoon. We loved it. Beautiful. How do you unwind? 
I, I love red wine, um, so it, which especially during the pandemic is not the best. So, so red wine, and I've learned to enjoy hot tea also at night to try to unwind. Yeah, there you go. A glass of cab and then some yes. tea. Um, tell me, do you have your own definition of feminism? Mm, that's a good question. I, you know, grew, I grew up and I was, I was taught that feminism was bad. Um, and it wasn't until I got older to, that I looked back at the generations uh, the two generations before me and how much they paved the way um, for me just being able to work in the workplace that I do. Um, so I don't know that I have a hard and fast definition. I just know that I am so appreciative um, for what the, the generations before me uh, fought for so that it almost was not something I had to think about when I was growing up. Um, and that, that's a very, that's a privilege, right? To have not had to even realize mm, that that yes. was a thing that people had to fight for. Tell me three words that describe you. Uh, thoughtful, optimistic. Uh, I, optimistic. Yeah, I, I lean, lean towards the glass house yeah. full. Um, loving and brave. Okay, I'll be brave oh, okay. too. Loving, <laughs> but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add brave. Thank you. What is a book you'd recommend to our listeners? Ooh, uh, I have a couple. Um, I'm currently reading through Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobus Dumez. Um, I Ooh, that's a good. Title. Also, am working through Russell Moore's um, Onward, which uh, is kind of before Christian nationalism became the the thing that we're all talking about, he wrote this book back in 2016, kind of outlining the, the heresy that it was. Um, and yeah, I'll stop there. I could give you more, but I, I love reading. Okay, great. No, interesting. Too good, interesting. Um, and the last question, how do you end your day? Well, usually we put the kids to bed and... Um, there's usually a glass of wine involved and it just kind of depends. Some nights I'm <laughs> scrolling through Twitter. I've, I also sometimes find that's not healthy. So other nights we try to find something funny on Netflix to make us laugh. Um, I spend most of my day dealing with, you know, hard topics. And so it's fun to, it's good to right. get a laugh in before you fall asleep. But that, that's usually how I end my day. Yeah, terrific. Thanks, Elizabeth. Now, the women to watch, PR Watch. Hey, everyone. I am Mindy Barnett, the founder and CEO of public relations firm MB and Associates. We are based in Philadelphia, New York. And today, I want to share a little bit about why PR is so necessary to business leaders, experts, brands, and also how it's different than traditional advertising. You know, both advertising and PR do help build brands and communicate with large target audiences or even small ones. And the most basic difference difference between them is that advertising space is paid while PR results are essentially earned through providing media with information or content in the form of a press release or a news pitch. Both do help build brands and communicate with your target audience, but the big difference between the two is the paid versus the non-paid. I also want to share that PR is essentially a much more credible avenue. You're positioned as a thought leader and people will see you and it'll resonate over time that you are indeed the person to go to the brand buy or whatever it is that you're essentially the expert in. Some of the major factors that essentially target the difference between the two and the importance of PR is essentially targeting companies and the organizations that you're working to attract. They can include employees, investors, customers, 
the media, certainly many, many, many more um, audience factors. And there's also even a new category that we're finding out, which is called influencers, which refers to people who have a lot of connections personally, whether they be celebrities or politicians or simply just have a mass following on social media. They are indeed very influential, hence the name influencer. If you want to learn more, I'm happy to do a free consult and offer some insight and advice on your business. My website is www.mbandassociatespr.com. Thank you so much. Hi, Sue Rocco here. Be sure to listen to this week's podcast to hear from top female executives share their own personal stories of adversity, inspiration, and what's happening in their field. Each week, I interview fascinating women who have risen to the top in their industry. It's truly enlightening to hear the truth of their journey to the top. You'll find the Women to Watch podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can listen here on 1210 WPHT every Sunday night at 6 p.m. Find out more at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Hi, Sue Rocco here from Women to Watch Media, bringing you a special edition of the show. I'm very honored and excited to have with me for this special, Teresa Boyer. Teresa is the founding director of the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership. And uh, as an alum of Villanova, it makes me even happier to be with her to share some information about a really special, not only the Institute and what it's doing for women, but a new course that they're going to be providing uh, for women who want to um, expand their knowledge and education around women's leadership and pursue higher levels. So, Teresa, welcome, excuse me, Terry, welcome to this special segment. Thanks, Sue. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I wanted to start off with a little brief history of Villanova for our listeners who might not be familiar with the university and how it ties to the Institute itself. Yes. Um, Villanova was founded in 1842, and for the vast majority of its existence, it was a majority male institution. And What's really interesting about the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership is that it's only about three and a half years old, and it's named after its benefactor, Ann Welsh McNulty, who who was part of one of the first graduating classes that was allowing women to be fully co-ed as a part of that. And Anne's story and her experience at Villanova in part mirrors the reason that we created and need an Institute for Women's Leadership. She knew when she was at Villanova that being one of the few women there in an institution that had very few, let's say, for example, women's restrooms or um, created or or suggested that they need to create a new mascot, a wild kitten for the female students, that this was a way to see the traditions and the culture at a university changing because women were becoming more a part of it. And yet, that was in the 70s. Anne, you know, went on to get her MBA and, um, you know, spend some time working at Goldman Sachs and other places. And um, she came back and became a member of the Board of Trustees. And when she was there, she said, you know, it's kind of interesting that we don't have any 
concerted effort on campus around women's leadership. We have lots of pockets of good mm -hmm. going on, but we don't have this concerted effort around it. And so um, in, as she was rolling off the board of trustees, she decided that she wanted to make it her mission to create something like, or to have Villanova create something like in this institute that we have today. Yeah, I, I'm, I was so excited to read about it in the paper when there was an announcement and you know the, the endowment for it. Um, I always like to ask the why of uh, you know any kind of project or endeavor that, that we're discussing. And I would love to ask you personally, why do you think we need an institute like this? Mm -hmm. Well, per the story that I just shared, we have institutions across the country and the globe where we've had majority male influence and most of our leaders have been men. So if you look even just back at the leadership of um, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or the presidency of the United States, we're looking at majority male in the CEO's situation and all male in the president's situation. And yet women have become a very, and have always been to a great extent, but have become way more active in our workplaces, in our community organizations, in our education systems, as a major part of our economy. And yet they're not holding the same leader, the same number of leadership positions as men. Right. And so we look at that situation and we say, what do we need to do to change that? And women's leadership development and gender equity is really across disciplines. It's not like you can sit and go just to business or just to education or just to economics and, and address this within one small aspect. You need something like an institute that is cross-disciplinary, that works across different colleges and schools and fields of study to use research and scholarship to know what our best practices might be to actually impact change, to actually advance women. So eventually we get to greater representation of women in those leadership positions that I was talking about. Right. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm sitting with Terry Boyer, the founding director of the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership. And one of the things that's it's so exciting over the past couple of years are all the firsts that we're seeing for women. So, you know, in speaking to what, what you just said, um, Ultimately, that's what we want. And I would wanted to ask you, you know, what changes have you seen within the Institute and with these um, initiatives in lieu of the first that we're seeing? Yeah. So it, it is really exciting to hear all of the first. So we have the, um, we have the first woman GM of a um, baseball team. We have um, the first uh, woman in the vice presidency role. We have lots of good things that have happened in the past few years. And so as part of that, you see that women have really have the skills that they need to, to some extent and have begun to make the connections they need, but we don't yet, and this was really highlighted in 2020 in the COVID crisis, we still have gaps in those systems and support. So at the same time you're seeing all of these great firsts, you're also seeing that women have had to leave the workforce in huge numbers, um, that women are reporting great levels of stress as they're trying to deal with issues of caregiving, et cetera. So the changes that we've seen are one, this increased level of awareness that there is inequity, that we don't have as many women leaders as we should in these positions, and that at the same time, women can and do these um, leadership roles really well. Right. I think there's um, always kind of a two-prong um, 
piece to, to these conversations. And one is the woman herself, mm -hmm. her personal development, her belief, you know, and confidence that she can do it. And then there are the systems and the companies and the way things have always been done. Um, what have you seen that's working in relation to systems? So when you think about what the Institute itself is doing and what you hear from women who are taking courses and, and participating, what, what do you find is working? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good um, question. And the answer is not, there's no single sil silver bullet to address this. And that's probably the biggest challenge when you talk to leaders of organizations or um, power players within systems, they want a silver bullet to be able to fix this and say, okay, if we just do so-and-so, you know, if we just train a whole lot of women to be leaders, <laughs> then we'll fix this problem. Right. But that's not the way we go about it. And that's the challenge part of it. The good news is we know there is a way that you can work towards systemic change. The first step is building awareness. We've done a good bit of that in the last uh, few years just alone building awareness for the need for change. And I think COVID-19 and the impacts that it's had on women and people of color have really been a big driver of that as well. So, but once you have awareness, you need to um, do your research. You need to find out within your system, within your particular organization, what are the gaps, what are the issues, what are the inequities that are playing out specifically within that sphere of influence you wanna change. And then from there, you need to build a team. So you need to have all of your stakeholders involved. You can't just say, okay, just leadership is going to do this, or we're only going to have the implementers working on it. You have to have voices and input from all of the stakeholders within the system or the organization. And then from there, you need to go back, use that data to build a plan, set reasonable goals, and then from there, go back and start all over again. So evaluate that. And that whole process is, as you might imagine, really complicated. Right, right. However, we know that it works. Right. We know that when uh, organizations, companies, um, different systems have looked at that and they approach it and they listen to women and people of color who are in their organizations and understand what those inequities are, they can actually build structured plans, make change, and come back and evaluate and fix it as they see things going on. Yeah. Tell me, our listeners, I want them to know you're, you're the founding director, so you're the first. Yes. How exciting is it for you to be in this role and be a part of this? And you know, this is my dream job. I'm actually a Villanova alum as well, and um, there's a funny story about how I became or took this position, and that was I hadn't been back to Villanova in like two, 20 years probably, and I was visiting with my brother-in-law who also happens to be an alum over Thanksgiving. We were walking around campus, and I got all those feels like, because, you know, wherever you went to college, you feel really intensely close to it. And I had actually chosen higher education as my field for my doctorate because of my experience at Villanova. And as I was walking around, knowing I had grown in my expertise around gender equity, et cetera, I turned to my brother-in-law and I said, you know, it's really too bad they don't have a women's center here because I would love to work here and, and work on change. And 
I, I kid you not, two weeks later, some one of my colleagues at my former institution put a job description on my chair for this founding director role wow. and put a little note, know anyone? And I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> here it is. And, and the reason that this was so exciting to me was the... Uh, the steering committee that Villanova had put together to form this, uh, the mission and the vision for this institute did a lot of research. They talked to students, they talked to faculty and staff, they looked at peer institutions, they um, had put together this, what I call a big, hairy, audacious goal vision, right? A BHAG vision of becoming a premier institution um, addressing issues of gender equity. And the, the mission that they had laid out was really tied to this concept of gender equity for the common good. And all of that was something to me who's been doing gender equity work for decades at this point saw that these people knew what they were talking about and knew what change they wanted to have. And it wasn't just, we're going to train a whole lot of women to become CEOs, which is good in and of itself, but isn't the kind of work that I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is this holistic approach that, as you said, helps women develop the skills that they need, particularly women who are underrepresented in leadership roles or different fields of study, but also changes the systems. And that's where that gender equity for the common good comes in. Mm -hmm. That's where um, the, piece de, the piece de resistance, as they would say, yeah. <laughs> um, is for me. And I've had this opportunity to shape something from just a mission and a vision to what we're at now, which we're only three and a half years old, but mm -hmm. we've got... Um, flagship programs for students where they use social change theory to develop leadership learning experiences. We're about to launch the certificate program for women who are finished with their formal education but need to build skills and understand systems change to help advance their own leadership. Um, we also are funding research and scholarship to build the foundations for best practices around what actually works here. And and we're building connections and collaborations among those pockets of good that I mentioned earlier, not just at Villanova, but nationally and even globally. And that's exciting. That is so exciting. I love when you speak about, you know, the, the, um, the overall good. And it's so important. We focus on women. And, and programs and skills and belief, but why are we doing it? Because it's not just going to help women, it's going to help the world, right? Um, which we should probably talk about y the young men, students mm -hmm. at Villanova yes. and, and men that support. Talk a little bit about what the feedback from them is about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so we actually have a number of people across the gender spectrum and men as well who are engaged with the Institute. And we even have uh, men who are ambassadors for the Institute. And their interest is really around that issue of the common good. So even if this, the title of the Institute says women's leadership, mm -hmm. they recognize that gender equity is something that impacts us all, that men have gender too, right? <laughs> Which is kind of <laughs> mind blowing for some people. And that, um, that they care about the community that they're a part of, and they want it to be better. And um, we have men who are in the ambassador program. We also have um, men faculty members and other uh, uh, researchers who are doing work on gender, who work and are interested in connecting with other scholars through the institute. 
And we have people who want to be advocates and allies for something that maybe they feel um, they don't experience the negatives of too much, but at the same time want to have a better situation for everyone. Right. that's exciting too. Yeah. I, I'm so happy to be sitting here speaking to Terry Boyer, the founding director of Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership at Villanova University. Um, I want to give you a moment to, to say specifically what this brand new women's leadership course certificate mm-hmm. is all about. What can they women expect to enroll? Yeah, so this is a collaboration between the McNulty Institute and the College of Professional Studies at Villanova. When I first came to Villanova, um, I talked to a lot of alumni and women who were either in the workplace or working from home. Um, and they kept saying, you know, I've had such a unique experience. I felt like I was really prepared when I left Villanova or when I was entering the workforce from wherever you did your formal education. And um, I was all excited about things. And then I got a few years in and I was like, this isn't what I thought (laughs) it was going to be. And there are um, ways that I'm not sure I know how to navigate. And what I was hearing as a researcher was they were consciously or unconsciously taking themselves off leadership paths because they didn't see how they could be really successful as leaders with the situation as it was. And um, be that that they felt there was a conflict between what they wanted to have a caregiving role, maybe as a parent or... Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that that was precluding them from being a leader, or they didn't like the politics of the workplace and how um, they had to really uh, constantly fight against they were too nice to be a leader. Or um, That's a big one, isn't it? The soft skills versus the, you know, the tough skills. If, if you don't have that naturally, you feel, well, then I, I don't belong you yes. know, in that leadership We call that the behavioral double bind in social science, and that's Mm. that um, women um, face that constantly, that push and pull between um, am I too nice, too pretty, or am I just nice enough but am not so far that I'm, um, you know, so tough that I'm considered aggressive or the B word, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And there's this push and pull around the identity of leadership that women are caught in the middle of. I often talk about leadership having an identity crisis right now where, um, at the same time, we know that um, many men hold those leadership positions I talked about a lot earlier in our conversation, but women have been doing leadership forever. Forever. Right? Yeah. And, um, but they don't necessarily identify as leader because so many of those characteristics or quality of leader, that strength, that decisiveness, that loud. Um, assertive, loud, etc., are things that are antithetical to what they see um, femininity to be, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, and that, that doesn't mean that all women are the same and all men are the same either. That's certainly not true. Um, but those those pushes and pulls to, to conform or to see themselves as a leader are at odds with each other. Right. And so what we try to do at the Institute is help 
better tell the story of how women have been leading and how women have been doing leadership and build those communication skills so they know they can both be nice, quote unquote, as well as um, strong <laughs> and, right. and right. still retain whatever their desire may be to be feminine or masculine or how, how where they, that being the authentic leader is the best approach to leadership rather than trying to conform to what other people's impression of leadership should mm. be. Yeah. If we do that and we get more women to claim the, the leadership um, title or leader identity, then we will hopefully see more women being accepted and um, nominated and put into those mm. leadership roles, which right. will then have a circular effect. I think that's so impactful to point out to women that they've already quietly been leading mm -hmm. and give them that aha moment. Oh, I have made a difference. I've been impactful. I've influenced so I can do it in other arenas outside of a community, right? Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're hitting on the four guiding principles of leadership that the Institute uses and is part of the certificate program that we have um, used as our foundation for the development of it. And that's impact, influence, equity and change agency. So the women who participate in this certificate program, which it's intensive, it's residential for three weekends. So it allows for kind of this retreat, reflective learning uh, space for the women who are participating. Um, we'll focus on building skills within each of those areas, their, their impact, their influence on others, their uh, ability to um, help others bring about change or becoming a change agent themselves, and the equity piece, which is that systems change, that looking at justice and fairness um, and maybe thinking about it outside of what we've traditionally looked at in terms of our norms or um, systems. Yeah. It's always amazing to me that we have to push for equal pay. You know, it, it, it's just incredible to me that two people, a man or a woman, can be doing the exact same job and, and there's not equal pay. That's a whole other show in itself. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm speaking to the founding director of the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute uh, for Women's Leadership at Villanova University. I had another, another question for you about where, you know, as, as the director, where do you go for research yeah. to see, you know, where things are happening and changing and what needs to be done? So what's really interesting about being um, the head of an institute for women's leadership is that it is cross-disciplinary, that I'm not just looking at um, the, the research in management or the research in economics or law or anything like that. Um, I need to be kind of thinking about my collaborators, my um, academic collaborators in all of those areas. So there are a couple of um, scholars at Villanova that I use, So I, and I've grown to know them, and that was one of the first things that I did when I came back to the institution was um, do what I called a great listening tour and, and talk to and found out which scholars at Villanova are doing this work. So we have some really great researchers in um, our sociology department in our um, our school of business, in our school of law, um, in in even history, <laughs> and other places yeah, like that. Important, yes, and um, and then. In addition to those scholars within Villanova, which are those pockets of good that I was talking about earlier, um, and elevating their work and helping support it and, and bring that about, um, we've also 
connected with uh, various centers and institutes across the country. So like the Institute for Women's Policy Research out of D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other um, institutes at, at other uh universities like Stanford and um, Wellesley Centers for Women in Massachusetts that um, we'd love to work collaboratively with to help grow that body of knowledge. Um, But in essence, we're trying to create a community of scholars at Villanova through the Institute as well. So we have a fellows program that right now, let's say, for example, is looking at black women's representation in um, politics, right, through elected positions as well as through their participation in the electoral process. And um, those that that is anchored by Camille Burge, who's a, a faculty member in our political science department, and so all of those pieces really come together. But that is a skill that you have to learn if you're looking at something across disciplines. Is who do I go to? What organizations? Do, what professional organizations do I connect with to try and understand who's doing scholarship that's relevant to gender equity and change? It's always fascinating to me as we continue to research that we continue to uncover those aha moments about why things are the way they are, right? Why women behave the way they do. Um, and Well, research is just like any other system, right? Scholarship and education is just like any other system. So it's been biased forever, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, those aha pieces are, you know, yeah, we've women have been behaving and acting in, in different ways and uh, throughout our existence. But the way we understand research and the way we begin to go about it, where we have more uh, women and different voices and diverse voices who are looking at things differently, that's when your aha moments come out. Yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, just, I want to come work with you. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to you talk about, really, it's, it's exciting to me, and there's so many different aspects. Um, I want you to uh, give information to our listeners about where they can go to sign up for the course. What's the best way to connect with, with Villanova regarding this? Yeah, so we are actually um, opening applications right now. And so if you go to our website, which is womensleadership.villanova.edu, you'll see a link right on there to the Women's Leadership Development Certificate Program. That'll connect you directly to our College of Professional Studies, who's hosting the certificate, and the application process for that. Um, The application is cohort, um, not the application, but the group will be cohort-based. So the women who participate in the program, as I mentioned, will be living on campus for two days um, every month in September, October, and November. So they'll be there a Friday and a Saturday doing intensive learning. But they're also going to be doing peer coaching and um, connecting with the other members of their cohort in between those times and doing some reflective learning. So um, we will let people know by the summer whether or not they've been accepted to the program once we've got that good cohort formed. How many total days will they be there? So uh, three three Friday-Saturday pairs. Okay. So, um, it and, sounds like camp to me. Well, you know... <laughs> Educational uh, camp for women. Women in 2020 have really taken it hard, right? And so yes. this is their opportunity to really focus it back on themselves, right. to really think about this is the time to be investing in your own leadership development and, and building your personalized leadership development plan, which will be an outcome of the certificate program. Right. And, you know, those two, those camp days, if you will, are to me more like a retreat, a chance to really be alone 
um, and yet with other peers to really reflect on who am I as a leader, who do I want to be as a leader, and how am I going to grow to that? Yeah, what do I need to do? Yeah, and have those aha moments. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I, I thank you so much for joining me for this special, and I know and hope we'll be hearing more from you over the next couple of months, and we'll continue to sing the praises of the work that you're doing. It's so smart. It's important. Um, and, you know, I think it's going to reach the women that really need it. Well, me too. And I'm really excited about it. And I'll come back anytime. Great. Great. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the special with Terry Boyer, founding director of the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership um, at Villanova University. And as always, if you want more information on the show or who's coming up next um, and what the next special might be, go to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. And be sure as well to check out our watch team of on-air contributors, all women who are leaders within their industries and, and their companies who bring incredibly interesting um, news, education, and inspiration to the show every week. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.